Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by Indle.io. Indle creates endless soundscapes to give your mind and body what it needs to achieve total immersion in any task. It's neuroscientifically created music that plays in the background. It gives me amazing focus while I'm working or relaxation while I'm meditating or chilling or driving. I love Indle.io. I truly do love Indle. It's one of my favorite new products of 2020, and you can use it to relax, concentrate, minimize distractions, and minimize brain fatigue. There's relax mode that I listen to while I'm just cruising in the car and and wanting to de-stress. There's uh, focus mode that I put on when I'm wanting to get work done. If I pair Indle.io with a Magic Mind shot, I am in the zone for four or five hours with deep work that I'm trying to get done. It is, like I said, neuroscientifically created to boost productivity and help you concentrate for longer. There's also sleep mode that soothes you into a deep sleep with these soft, gentle sounds that uh, are created not like a three-minute song because it just continues on, but it is AI-generated music that just continues to play for for as long as you want to listen to it. And it's completely aligned with your circadian rhythm. It also uses things like the weather, your heartbeat if you have an Apple Watch, the time of day to also tweak their algorithm to design the music for that mood or for that time of day. It's insanely smart technology. The team behind it is brilliant. And it's also available offline so you don't have to be connected online to listen to it. I highly, highly recommend checking out Endel. It is, uh, like I said, one of my favorite, one of my favorite products of 2020. So go check it out, Indle.io. And for listeners, actually I have a promo code for you. Go to code.indle.io and type in below the line. Code.indle.io and type in below the line for the promo code to get a huge discount from our friends at Endel. Big fan. Go check them out. That's E-N-D-E-L dot I-O. E-N-D-E-L dot I-O. And the link is also in the description. Another one of our badass sponsors is Vanta. Is your sales team unable to close deals because you don't have a SOC 2 report? A SOC to me, as some people call it. Or do you have a SOC 2 report that is being managed by a team of employees, several of them spending countless hours on it every year? Vanta has built connected software that makes it easy to both get and renew your SOC 2. The easiest way to get one and renew it year after year. With Vanta's continuously monitoring solution, you avoid hosting auditors on site, sending loosely paper back and forth, taking hundreds and hundreds of screenshots to prove that you're compliant. None of that with Vanta. Vanta partners with over two dozen AICPA accredited audit firms who all are trained to file your SOC 2 report directly inside of Vanta at a fraction of the cost that you might be used to. Hundreds of companies like Lattice, Clubhouse, Bolt, which is a portfolio company of mine that raves about using Vanta, are leveraging their services today to streamline compliance and focus on building their businesses. Below the line listeners can redeem $1,000 off. That's $1,000 off at vanta.com slash BTL. Go to vanta.com dot com slash btl that's v a n 
ta.com slash btl to redeem your $1,000 off coupon and see how much better it is than the old way of doing things. Below the Line is also brought to you by, I hate saying that because I know you're just going to go right into fast forward uh, for the episode when I say brought to you by. So instead, I'm going to say Below the Line has something else that it wants you to hear about. And that is a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Do you want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every day and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking way too much coffee day to day. It is the single most important part of my morning ritual to get more done and to stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, whatever it is. I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind it. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co. That's magicmind.co. And enter the promo code BTL to get 15% off and try it for yourself. So there you go. And if you dig below the line, we would love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. It takes three seconds. You don't even have to write anything anymore. So if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, thank you so much. We read every single one, the good and the bad, but we especially read the five-star ones. But if you haven't left a review, go into, as the YouTubers say, go into the app store and smash that subscribe button and also smash the review stars or whatever you need to smash and uh, leave us a review good or bad we appreciate every single one hello friends and listeners today's episode is with andrew dudum andrew is co-founder of hymns and hers one of the fastest growing companies in history. They are two and a half years in and are valued north of a billion dollars. And I saw their first million in sales within five weeks of launch. One of the fastest growing companies that I've ever come across. And it is seems like overnight success, but as the cliche goes, it's overnight 10 years in the making. Andrew has started north of 10 different businesses and has a whole lot of wisdom to share in this episode. I really enjoyed chatting with him. We chat about, obviously, the the launch of Hymns and how crazy that was, but also the low moments, the lowest moments that he's experienced as a founder. We talk about exposure therapy and how that applies to being a founder. We talk about the healthcare system that we currently live within and what it could look like if it was designed around the consumer. We talk about all of these things and so much more with Andrew. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is Below the Line. Okay, you just popped open a drink. Andrew, what what did uh, what'd you just pop open? I opened up a, a lime sparkling water, the Kirkland sig- Signature brand, you know, going for the Costco wholesale. Uh, hey, man, Kirkland's good. I know. It's really good stuff. 
<laughs> is that your is that your drink of choice throughout the day, or are you just grabbing it for uh, for this for this podcast? You know, just grabbing it quickly. I'm I'm a tea guy, but it's it's really quite warm where I am. It's I'm in out in Minneapolis today, and it's 80, 80 plus degrees. So decided to grab something else. Oh, nice. What brought you to Minneapolis? My wife and her family are from here. So we are out visiting the in-laws, spending the week, you know, nice time to get out of San Francisco and California while we, you know, kind of let some of that smoke and fires clear out. Uh, so we're getting some nice family time in. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm uh, down here in LA and the smoke just cleared up. It is That's great. And how long have you been in SF? I, I you know, we're going to talk about hymns and we're going to talk about the here and now, but would love to uh, to go back a bit, starting with how long have you been in SF? And and I actually remember Lind for Peace. Um, oh, I ran I ran a microfinance news site uh, when I was like 22, called the MiFi Report, and I ran it out of, while I was working on the ground in, in Cape Town, South Africa, in microinsurance. I ran uh, this little news site, and I remember Lind for Peace. Loved it. I uh, love the concept of it. So we'll talk about that that too. But just real quick, how long have you been in, uh, you and your, your wife been in SF? You know, we, uh, we've been there for quite a while. We, you know, I was born and raised in a city. So I grew up out in the sunset by the beach in, in San Francisco, um, spent, you know, up until 17 or 18 there, and then um, went out to Philly for college. So went to, to Penn and, and the Warden School for, for undergrad. You know, I only, and this is probably, you know, one of my, my, where the whole entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey began, but, you know, I ended up lasting just about two years in school and then deciding to take a leave and coming back to San Francisco to build companies. So, you know, I've been, I've been in sit in the city for, you know, 30, 30 plus years, I guess. Oh, awesome. What is the, give me the long form version of that story. And specifically just for listeners and for my own curiosity, walk me through you're around 20 years old, that decision tree and what, yeah, give me the long form version of that story. Specifically of leaving school. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so my background was, was it interesting when I was a kid, I was, you know, a concert cellist for about 15 years. So I was traveling the country, traveling the world, actually playing hundreds of weddings, you know, and wow. playing orchestras and quartets. And, and that's really what I love doing which is kind of, you know, not necessarily the training wheels to building a large company, but it was just, you know, a passion of mine. And so I spent most of my early years playing music. I decided when I was 18, I wanted to balance that with, you know, the other side of the brain and, and the business fundamentals. So decided to go to, to, to Wharton. You know, it was incredibly exciting to be there. I was surrounded by um, brilliant individuals, a completely new way to learn you know, incredibly practical education around venture capital, product design, um, finance, hedge funds. I mean, just a, a real immersion in, you know, financial institutions, which was incredible. And I, and I actually loved it. What I realized pretty quickly was, you know, my instincts were to just go and put things in practice and, and, and build instead of sitting and learning. Right. And, and up until that point, you know, high school had been relatively easy for me. Middle school had been relatively easy. And so it didn't take a tremendous amount of cognitive weight. But when I got to Warren, you know, I was surrounded by brilliant people. And, you know, I was sitting outside of the engineering schools most of the time trying to convince engineers to build product ideas with me. 
instead of showing up to my late stage corporate finance classes. And just over and over and over again, I was just dedicating more and more time to building and um, collaborating on project ideas and prototyping um, and designing and kind of using that mix of the creative brain that I that I had and, and that had really fostered now being surrounded by people that could help on the business and practical side, trying to put that together in real life. And so, you know, I realized pretty early that I was more of a learner that needed to get my hands dirty versus sit in class and, and kind of be spoken to. And and that's really where I started investing in projects. So Lend for Peace actually was, you know, the first company that I founded when I was about 18 years old. And I founded it with an incredible group of co-founders that now today are still running, you know, very large companies. Just I was so lucky. And the idea there was to build a micro lending platform that connected anybody in the world to um, individuals and different business models and business plans, specifically in the Middle East, to help finance small families. So if there's a Mm -hmm. woman in the West Bank, for example, in the Palestinian territories, that is running a small chicken farm and she needs $500 to 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 build out some structure in the backyard so that she can bring in 10 or 20 more chickens and double the business and not only take care of her family but also now take care of the two and three families around her right or start to send money to you know family members in other villages that was the point of the program and you could then go online you could read about this woman in in the West Bank who needed $500, you could see her family, you could see the pictures, you could look at the loan dynamics, the interest rate, you know, when it was expected to be returned, the bank that she was working with, and you could chip in 25 bucks. And people from around the world were chipping in 25 bucks to, to loan this woman money. And this was happening thousands and thousands of times over and over and over again, right? And that's the idea of micro lending. Um, in particular, you know, for me, I really love this program because, you know, the ability to build economic stability in regions where there is political instability, I think is really critical. And, and obviously, in, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, you've got a huge economy um, in Israel and a very, very struggling economy in the Palestinian territories. And so by creating opportunity in that region and stabilizing that region, the hope was that you could bring a, a, a bit of a, a more hopeful future and more normal relations and normal economic dynamics between, you know, the people that could hopefully lead to some better peace outcomes. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I think it's so in vogue and, and cliche to think of business as, as devoid of humanity. But the best businesses, you know, if you look over the last hundred years, have so much humanity within them mm-hmm. and focus on... No, you know the the cliche now is the obsession with the customer, but that is that's a very human thing. And and then in the macro side of things, it's financial stability, economic stability is one of the most. I mean, it's one of the most primal foundations for a community that you can that you can think of. So that's not only sounds like a really interesting mix of business intersection at you know right at the heart of business applied to humanity uh, and to the development of a region, but I just know that realm so well. It's I think it's one of the best forces that can that can be leveraged for for peace, which is uh, economic stability um, yeah. and and right. business. But I do want to ask: twelve years into building other companies, how many how many companies have you started now? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I, I I haven't I haven't done the the calculus. You know, after dropping out of of Wharton, I. 
you know, joined an early Sequoia Capital startup, which was an incredible experience that we then sold to Telefonica in Spain in 2012. And then, and then after that, I, I co-founded Atomic Labs in San Francisco, um, which eventually essentially turned into a model of a venture studio model. And so over the course of the last decade, you know, we've built, I think, over a dozen companies, prototyped probably 50 to 100 of them, but actually founded and funded about a dozen of them, um, you know, raised close to a billion in capital across those businesses. There's thousands of employees across those companies now. And so I've really been blessed to you know, to be at the, you know, the founding days around the table, you know, in the pit, you know, in the trenches grinding, um, you know, those are some of the most memorable and meaningful moments in a company's life. And I've just been, you know, so, so blessed to be able to do it so many times. But yeah, I think it's probably, you know, 12 to 15 companies at this point. That is awesome. And so when you look back at your first company with Lynn for Peace, how do you reflect on it? Like the, the deep kind of below the line version, not necessarily the perfectly polished, this is what we did. And it was so foundational because I'm sure it was foundational, integral to the rest of your career. But when you do reflect on it as a founder in terms of just the actual approach and as a nascent founder, how do you reflect on that experience now, you know, 12 years later and, and a lot more cycles, you know, under your belt? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think the the psychological dynamics around founding a company, I think, are so critical to whether or not you'll have the stamina to keep up the hard work to get that business to the point where it can actually be impactful. And what I mean by that is, you know, building companies is just terribly difficult. I mean, for anybody that's actually gone and founded something, like God bless you, it's it's brutal, right? It's it's really really tough. And and when founders come to me. And friends come to me and entrepreneurs come to me and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of starting a company. What do you suggest? Most of the time I tell them I don't think they should, which is kind of counterintuitive. And what I tell them is, unless you are essentially unable to not start this company, meaning you are up at night, you can't stop thinking about it, you're at work and all you're doing is you know, writing business plans or prototyping or talking to customers or thinking about the brand or whatever it is. Unless you're in that position where there's no other choice because you are just so enthralled with this idea, I don't think you should do it. And that's just because I'm sorry, the phone's ringing here. Um, no worries. Because it's so it's so hard. Like it really is. And so I think at the beginning stages, it's critical that you are incredibly passionate about this concept. And the way you become passionate is by becoming close to the customer, right? You have to like sit with the customer. You need to understand the pain points deeply, you'd have to have those pain points resonate with you emotionally. And so you were talking about the fact that business, you know, is so human, and and it's true. I mean, if you don't have that nugget of insight, and the closeness to your customer and how your product is making their life better, you have no chance of building anything of value because in six months, it's going to be brutal. And you're going to be like, why am I doing this? I should quit. And you're going to wake up one morning and be like, the only reason I'm doing this is because that nugget of insight for this customer, they need X, Y, and Z, and I'm able to provide it to them. And that's going to keep me going to build this company. And so, you know, I think psychologically, one of the most advantageous things you can do as a, as a founder, not only because it's the right thing to do, because I think it's the only way to build something of meaning, 
is to just get so deeply entrenched in the customer. And, and with Lend for Peace, we were able to do that. I, I went to the Middle East. I met with these farmers. I met with these families. You know, learned why they needed a hundred dollars and how this hundred dollars is going to change their life, right? And and when you see that in person, you can then you know carry that with you for forever. And that has continued with me all the way through founding Hims and Hers, where you know I was sitting down with men and women and hearing about how they couldn't access birth control, um, or that they, they were terrified every morning because they were seeing their hair fall out, but they were scared and they were only eighteen, so they. They didn't feel like it should happen yet. You know, there's all these human dynamics, but at the core, you need to really get deep there and then put that in your heart and hold that because it's what it's what's going to keep you going over the next four and five and and you know it takes on average seven to ten years, right, to build a company over the course of a decade that will be necessary to build something of meaning. Yeah, it is certainly. I know with my first venture, I felt like it was going to be a shortcut to professional stability, you know, being your own boss, financial security. I just was so optimistic. I thought it was going to be a shortcut. And it is, you know, anything that takes seven to 10 years is it's, it's not only not a shortcut, but it's also uh, so many years of that is seven days, seven days a week. At least it was right. for, in my experience. What advice, it, walk me through an actual tactical low point that you remember from Lend for Peace, if there are any that are just singed in your brain from your first venture, and whether things that you got wrong personally or just market conditions or or anything that's just been singed in your brain, and and walk me through the follow up is what advice, you know, knowing all that you know now, what advice would you have given yourself back in that in that situation? Yeah, that's such a great question. I feel like there's <laughs> there's maybe hundred things I can think about from the last 15 years, you know, building companies where, you know, you, you got it wrong, right? You just, you completely got it wrong. And then you're sitting there, you're reflecting and you're trying to figure out, okay, what the hell do we do now? You know, with Lend for Peace, there were, you know, there were partners in, in the Middle East that we partnered with that ended up not being the high degree of quality that we needed them to be. Um, and, and at that point, we're like, oh, man, what do we do, right? We're, we, we've relied on these, these people on the ground to help us source great lenders. And when we get there in person, we realize it's not what, it, what they thought they were going to be. You know, or, or after Lend for Peace, you know, I built a, a live video product that, that I mentioned with Sequoia. You know, it's a company called Talkbox. It was a live video streaming technology company. I mean, it quite literally was the technology that could power and build Zoom, but 10 years earlier. And we got the timing totally wrong. I mean, literally a decade too early. And we were like, we see the future, we know it's there, but we kept pushing this boulder up this hill and the hill st- like kept getting slippier. Like it was like ice on this hill. And we're like, what are we doing? And just realize at a certain point that customers weren't ready. The technology wasn't there yet. The internet connectivity was not there. The use case for remote work wasn't strong enough yet. And so we just found ourselves kind of in this position. And I think what happens in those moments is you question everything, right? You question, wow, I just convinced my family and friends to give me money to build this idea. And now, you know, here I am six months later or a year later, and I'm realizing maybe the idea isn't going to work. And I think what, you know, the best entrepreneurs that I know do in those situations is, you know, take the time to reflect on that, but then take the time to figure out how to pivot and and make a change. And I think 
when when you talk to really great seed investors, they'll tell you that they're investing in the team more than anything. And and I think a lot of people believe that that's just you know a moniker of, of like kindness that investors say like oh I really care about the team. But in reality, it's a financial decision because the majority of startups that that VCs invest in, you know, whatever business they're starting in is not the business that eventually succeeds, right? At, at many points throughout the, the period of growth, they realize that the customer that they're targeting may not be ideal, that the business model isn't going to work, maybe that the market that, it, that they thought existed is not actually even there, right? And so now they've got this team and they've got a set of capital and resources and they need to figure out what to do with it. So, you know, I think being in that position is a a normal part of being an op- an operator and an entrepreneur and i think for most companies it happens and the best companies come out of it because they take some time to reflect they look at the assets that they have around the table and then they figure out how else that they can be meaningful in the market that they're going after and, and often that means changing the customer or changing the product but inevitably um, i think most successful companies go through that process have you had that experience with with hims and hers? Are there moments where you pointed to where you're, like, where you're just kind of like shit? Okay, this is this is a uh, unexpected circumstance that we're finding ourselves in, but I know how to be patient and navigate through it. Or has it been smooth sailing? Because obviously, with with the way the way companies are are written about, it can just feel like absolute smooth sailing, and sometimes that really is the case. Um, yeah, but sometimes it's you know you got a blog post of eight hundred words. You're not going to tell all of the fifty three <laughs> iterations that didn't work out in those eight hundred words, right? Well, well, there's probably like fifty thousand iterations of hims and hers that didn't work out. You know, I think the company's been around for two and a half years, or been live for two and a half years, but we've been prototyping that idea for you know almost five years now. I think what's unique about hims and hers is that the vision has always been the same which has been to empower people around this country to take control of their health and wellness. And what that means is give them the tools from their phone, just how we you know, love to interact with every other thing in our life, like Amazon or food or transportation. Give people the tools to get access to a specialist for any condition that they're worried about, see transparently all of the treatments that could help them feel better and be their best, and then make it really damn easy to get that stuff shipped to the patient's door. Right. So that was always the vision. And that still is the vision. And, and I think will continue to be the vision in a, in a decade from now. What changed, though, is how you do it. Right. We probably tested hundreds and hundreds of different brand concepts and flows and value positions and how you how you talk about the service. Should it be incredibly clinical or should it be something that's entirely human oriented? Should it be um, something that uh, gives people full flexibility of, of transparency of how the whole process works, or do you just show them incremental pieces one by one? And so, you know, how the actual product exists today and how it looks today, very, very different from five years ago. And it continues to evolve every single month. But I think we were really lucky with Hims and Hers that the mission hasn't changed, right? And the vision hasn't changed. And the need hasn't changed. It's it's really just more about how you actually execute against that. That's changing all the time. Um, and you know, I tell this story about when we first launched uh, the first prototype to test this idea. It was probably five years ago. 
it costs fifty thousand dollars to test. And we made a, a, a small website on the weekend. It was just three of us, and we put a couple thousand dollars into Facebook ads, and we just learned. We learned, you know, who was coming to us, what they were looking for, what problems they were concerned with. Um, how quickly they were checking out. Was this something that was really urgent or something that maybe they didn't care much about? And we learned a tremendous amount, but that was the first test of hundreds. And and I think, you know, when you're going after a big market like we are in healthcare, the vision is often pretty consistent, right? You know that people really are in need and you know that people need better tools and better systems and better companies to help them get care that that is required. But the how, you know, is very unknown. And, and you just need to test your way and iterate your way into that to figure it out. How does that, in, and just to continue to bring it back to founders that might be seven months into their first venture, seven months before starting their first venture, how did that? How does that contrast to how you started things 10 years ago? It's so different. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's so different. Yeah, you know, walk me through. As a first-time founder, for me at least, and, and I hope people are smarter than, than me, you know, but when I first started those companies, I felt like I knew exactly how this thing was going to work. Not only did I know the vision, but I felt like I knew the, what the page was going to look like, the flow that was going to convert individuals. I thought I knew right, the price right. point that was perfect. I felt like I knew, you know, the product experience that was going to wow them. And I took people's money and I built that experience and I didn't ask anybody along the way, right? I didn't get customers in the door and, and iterate with them. I just built it, right? I came up with the name, we finalized the price points, we launched it, and then we're like, this is about to work, click. And then nothing happened, right? We launched those products and literally nothing happened. Nobody showed up. And I think there's this you know, idea in Silicon Valley, which I think is totally wrong, which is you know, if you truly build the best product, if you really build the best experience, people are going to find you and you're going to win. And I think that's just like category, categorically false. Right? Mm -hmm. it, it is proven over and over and over that a lot of times the best product doesn't win for a number of reasons. Maybe because they didn't figure out distribution or they didn't figure out how to grow or they didn't figure out how to tell the story to the right population um, or they, they just didn't nail the positioning, right? And so I think as an early founder, you're so um, excited to build that you just start running and you start building and then you launch it. And then what inevitably happens is no one shows up. You sit there and you wonder why. You start talking to customers. Customers take a look at what you've built and they give you a whole bunch of feedback. It becomes relatively obvious as to why they didn't show up, right? Or what they didn't like because you're now talking to them. And then what you do is you go, okay, we're going to launch a V2. Right. And the V2 is actually what probably should have been the V1. Right. But you're now six months in or nine months in and you're launching a V2 with customers hand in hand, side by side with you. And so I think that that was such an interesting learning to me, having done that so many times and having failed so many times that with hims and hers, we got people involved immediately from day. I mean, it was like day one, we had customers telling us about what they had tried. We had them looking at our flows. We had them um, reacting to the copy on our website. How does this make you feel? Does it make you feel respected? Does it does it clearly articulate you know the needs and the values that we're going to bring? And we iterated, and and in doing so, 
you know, there are quite literally tens of thousands of versions of what we've built that have that have been adjusted over the last four and five years. And so, you know, I think what I'd recommend for founders today, you know, that normal process of raise money from family and friends, pick your name, design it, build it, launch it, is missing a really critical element, which is the learning phase and the iteration phase. And so what I what I always recommend is flip that process upside down. You know, start talking to the customer, start learning with them, start writing on a piece of paper some ideas, show it to them. You don't need to raise money for that at all, right? Maybe jump on Shopify, create a website for 10 bucks, right? And and start showing it to to people, see how they react to it and and iterate through that process until you feel like you have you know, their, their instincts in your brain. And when you have their instincts in your brain, then you can start revving and start going a little bit quicker. But I think that that process of doing, you know, the V2 or the V3, you know, doing that first is, is one of the most critical processes that I, you know, had to, had to learn the hard way for sure. Man, there's so much I want to, I, that comes to mind on this, around this topic. And I think you're exactly right. It's, uh, I just that my last episode was a solo episode where um, titled "Ready Fire Aim," and it talks about how I was chatting with a, a really famous athlete that is uh, wanting to start to venture invest and has started a little bit, and and he was saying what he looks for, and just give. And one of the things that that he looks for is, and he it was such a point of emphasis. There was even body language that he provided. He's like, I want to see a detailed plan down to every point of what the business is about to do. And that's when I know I'm working with partners that uh, that can execute. And and I nodded, I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds, uh, it sounds like you're playing a game that's 100 years old and it's basketball and everyone knows the rules and that planning before the game is absolutely critical versus making up a game versus not knowing what the rules are gonna be, not just being a player within a game that has all these established limitations and rules but it's you know if you're making up a game from scratch trying to get people to play it it <laughs> it is uh that's why i titled it ready fire aim that's like the that's terrible i believe that's a terrible way for for finding um startups to invest in and it's far more about i mean it's you know survival of the fittest isn't about strength it's about adaptability and finding the ones that can adapt the easiest and and the most flexibly those are the founders to your point earlier of finding the right founders like that is that is what you really look for um the ones that are getting insights left and right not just you know just moving around and a lot of activity why is that the the idea why do people feel like it is about and you and i were, were exactly you know the same in this regard of thinking it's about coming up with a concept, you know, on a long walk, on a, you know, sitting down on a bench and drawing out exactly what people want. And then that ends up being so far from how you actually deliver value for people. Why is that? Why is the image in our heads, the, the former instead of the latter? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really romantic, right? It's, it's this idea that as the founder, you know, you have the vision from the beginning and you're expected to know exactly how it's supposed to be and what the future is going to look like. And that sounds incredible, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, once they have built a successful company, 
speak to the past with a certain amount of you know revisionist history that you know articulates a story that kind of sounds like man this this dude or this woman like they knew from the beginning exactly how it was going to be and they had that vision exactly planned out perfectly and they were on that walk and they had that idea and then they haven't looked back since and it's romantic it's incredibly romantic to to feel like that you know that is how building companies plays out and and I just don't think that's true right i think what inevitably happens is there is a spark but the spark is an instinct that that people need something that you can offer right or the spark is an instinct that there's this divergence taking place of customer expectation and real life deliver like deliverability what people want and what they can get is just so far apart or there's this instinct of man there's these people that are really struggling and all of that is true and 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 every good founder i know has the spirit of the customer within them and they can articulate that beautifully now, does that mean they can articulate exactly how they're going to plot out towards executing against that initiative? Absolutely not. Right? That's why you then go hire great people, great designers, great operators, great business people, great marketers, great engineers, because in collaboration, you're going to be molding this piece of clay over the next 10 years, and it's going to be changing dramatically. And you want as many smart people as, as you can get into that room to do so always you know you as the founder keeping the spirit of the customer at the at the core of all the conversations right but i think it's romantic this idea that you know everything but i also think it's it's really detrimental if you're a founder and you're thinking about building a company and you feel like you don't have all the answers you know that's normal that's okay right you start surrounding yourself with people that can help you um and and mentor you and and give shape to this piece of clay um, and you as a founder, your job is actually to be the energy that gets those people together in the room to talk about the customer that you're thinking about to help plot the course. But you don't necessarily need to do each step of that. So I think it's pretty different from people's expectations, but it's much more collaborative. It's much more iterative. And, and I hope people see that because I think it will result in you know people feeling a little bit more confident in their abilities to start companies, right? Because the more people that are involved in innovation, the more people that, from my perspective, leave large institutions and start focusing on customers on the ground and making their life better iteratively, the better, the better for the society, the better for for the people they're taking care of and focused on. And, And I think overwhelmingly for them as individuals, it's much more rewarding. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it takes a whole lot of confidence to say, the three magical words of I don't know. And and I it took me a long time to realize how much confidence it takes to say those powerful words. But as soon as you do, you invite the insight of and the wisdom of of those around you to help help find out the answers. And it's so tempting. And I think you're right, is this romanticized version of the doer that's doing everything that 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 is either who knows? Maybe it's it's tied to just the stories we tell, and it's certainly I think you're you're right, and it's tied to how these things are revised. So one, I implore you to all to to always tell the story of of being such good listeners and being wrong and doing fifty thousand iterations uh, with with hymns and hers verses. You know, three years from now, five years from now, it uh, it could you could easily slip into that narrative of 
of you know just being so on point with the solution versus being so obsessed with with the problem and being really what sounds like really flexible with the solution yeah it's it is and i think you're right that it's not just not just revisionist history it's also really detrimental to the the startup ecosystem that these stories get told and then every founder including the second third and fourth time founders that know the actual how the the actual arc goes every founder finds themselves 7 months in 16 months in saying what the fuck this is not going like any of the stories that i've ever heard maybe we should just hang it up and and call it quits versus the real reality being most likely no that's your 11 months in it's not working in even i always think about the instagram story being one of the most canonical examples of they hit they press launch uh and you know ship the first version and and it sold for a billion dollars 15 minutes later and in the real version uh, not only was it two years later but but the real version was they fucked it up so badly in the first 12 months that they rebranded it scrapped the whole project and rebranded it from bourbon to instagram but boom that part of the story gets chopped off and but within the the first week they had 30,000 downloads and that becomes the new the new story i think it's so detrimental like it's not i could talk for an hour about uh, what you just said because i completely agree that it's it's not just this um narrative that's that's wrong it's really detrimental to all of the creative power in people's heads and hearts that get 7 months in or 16 months in and think this is not like anything i've ever heard i think that's entirely right I think that's totally right. With Hims, you said that uh, I, I just have to ask on a personal level, as a 11-year-old Andrew, as a 14-year-old Andrew, would you say you're a sensitive kid? I'll tell you why I'm asking in a second, but seems like out of left field. Um, I think I think the answer to that was yes. You know, I think I was very emotionally aware of my peers and friends and you know, was insecure and was scared. And, you know, I, I, I think I probably erred on you know, more of the introvert, emotional, thoughtful end than, than not. Yeah, the reason I ask is because, and I'd love to talk about this more, but the reason I ask is because it, it sounds like with him's one of the, the biggest strengths was not only the confidence to to say we don't know what the solution is actually going to be, um, and and which one of these thousand iterations is going to be the uh, the winning one, but just a whole lot of listening versus well what we were just talking about versus just a whole lot of doing, and it takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of sensitivity. Is that in any way accurate, or am I a complete uh, idiot for for trying to make that connection? I don't think that's a stretch. You know, I think as a founder, you know, you, again, if you bring this back to the customer, you need to be listening all the time and you need to be hearing, you know, the whys um, that are that are deep underneath that customer journey. And so, you know, in healthcare and with hims and hers, you know, when you talk to the customers and when you're learning and you're listening, there's incredible data in there and there's incredible stories and incredible narratives that are very, very human. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people in this country unable to afford their deductibles, right? On their insurance plan. You know, you've got 70% of 
counties in this country where there's not even a doctor within two hours. That means, you know, you're hearing stories of people that live in huge swaths of the United States that would have to drive like two or three hours to, to see a physician to talk about something they're worried about, right? And so when you're hearing these stories and you're listening to them, you, know, you need to feel, right? <laughs> and the emotional ability to like have that story resonate with you and then stick with you right? And then kind of like not leave you. You're like, damn, that story is like really, really upsetting. Or that story is really real. And there's so many people like, you know, X, Y, and Z who I spoke to. You know, that is in so many ways, you know, the rocket fuel for building a company, right? Like that's the thing that keeps you going as I was talking about. And so I do think that ability to listen, that ability to, to feel the human elements and the dynamics that are taking place in the customers you're in the customers lives that you're targeting and have that kind of be something you hold tightly is a really critical part of this whole process yeah it's, i think it's that's the pattern that i've noticed with with so many founders that that i admire is is they they really are sensitive people and and there's they they can be talked about as if as if there's so much strength in what they're doing, but their their core strength isn't uh, just the brute forcing knocking down walls. It's it's being really sensitive to customer problems, to people problems, uh, to even recognize that it was a problem, to feel it so in such a heartfelt way that they want to do something to to solve it. But there's also the other side of that. Being a founder, and this is you know this is. An area that I also wish founders would w- really want to encourage founders to talk about more has how do you navigate using that sens- sensitivity, that caring for good and not to a detriment to your own psyche, to your own momentum, personal momentum, to where you know you're able to focus that on on making customers ecstatic and and not let it potentially play in your head when things are going wrong with. Uh, the execution of the company with a certain executive hire or all of the million things that go wrong with building something, how and have you found a good way of of navigating it to where you're using that sensitivity for reinforcing making a stronger business versus it being something where you just live in your head, you know, for uh, multiple days a, a week as you as you try to as you try to navigate something that is really, really tough, like you said, building a company. Yeah. You know, I think um, what, what's helped me in the last decade, and, and, and I think Hims and hers is it probably, and you know, I've been very blessed to have had a lot of experiences to refine these skills a little bit to kind of ready me for Hims and hers, just because that that story and trajectory has been so unique in the last few years that I think it's just required a lot of um, or I've, been, I've benefited from a lot of cycles at this. But I think a key part is that you need to keep everything you're doing in perspective, like truly in perspective. And what I mean by that is on the days that the company is completely going to fail, like, on, and there's every company has those days where you feel like the whole thing's falling apart. You know, the executive you hired who you're relying on is going to leave, or the numbers aren't working, or you're running out of money. Or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I've heard it said the best companies, it's two things going great that day and two things That's catastrophically right. happening all at the same time. All at the same time. Yeah. I mean, and, and those days, just to be clear, are very, very common, right? 
you are as as a founder, you are essentially experiencing hour to hour emotional swings that are really staggering, right? Like you might hear from a customer that you've been trying to close for months and months and months that they've signed up in one minute in one call, and then you might be on a call ten minutes later where the engineering team is telling you they can't deliver for that customer, right? And so you're on the highest of high and then you're on the lowest of lows. And that's happening every single day, every single hour. So, you know, I think you need to keep this whole thing in perspective and you need to moderate it. You need to like keep, you need to intentionally keep the highs a little bit lower and the lows a little bit higher, if that makes sense, right? You need to keep that spectrum a little bit tighter and be appreciative of, of the good when it happens you know, and and be a little bit bummed when bad stuff happens, but realize it's going to be okay because you're going to be in this band for years and it is a marathon. And so if you let those highs and lows emotionally toll you, you just won't be able to last. And so I think the way that I've done that is, you know, I've intellectualized perspective. You know, I've thought, okay, I'm running hims and hers. It's an amazing business. We have the opportunity to help hundreds of millions of people and it might fail. And if it fails, you know, the people that we've hired will lose their jobs, which is terribly sad. And I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that doesn't happen. And these hundreds of millions of people that have the potential to be helped won't be helped. And that is a very real outcome, right? Mm -hmm. For any company, right? Actually, it's the, it's the likely outcome for most companies, right? And so in the beginning years, what I did is I intellectualized that and I said, okay, that's a real possibility. I've thought about it. I've sat on it a little bit. I've al- I've almost like given myself a little bit of like exposure therapy treatment where like I by thinking about that it's uncomfortable and it's terrible, but then you kind of kind of get comfortable with the idea that that's a possibility and then you move do on. You might, you do you mind do you mind telling listeners a little bit more about um just that that term exposure therapy? Yeah, so you know there's there's this there's this concept in um cognitive behavioral therapy which essentially is kind of um, the ability for you as an individual to get comfortable with your worst fears, right? So if you have a severe fear of, of snakes, let's say, and you do all types of things throughout the day, you know, cause you live, you know, in, in an area where there's snakes in the yard to avoid snakes, like the mental distress, right. That you have all day long, the fear is really gripping on you as an individual. And it's really detrimental to you as an individual. So what, what, Exposure therapy is, is, hey, you know what, we're going to, in a safe environment, think through what it would be like to sit with a snake. And it's going to be super uncomfortable to think about it. And you're going to sweat and you're going to get anxiety and you're going to feel this fight or flight mentality of like, man, I got to get out of this situation, but you're going to do it. And you're going to sit through that pain and you're going to do it 10 times a week for two weeks. And what happens is by the 10th time on the second week, it's really not that scary anymore right? Your body has adopted to that experience. It's been, it's become normalized. The cortisol levels in your body don't trigger as fast anymore, right? Your anxiety doesn't spike as rapidly. And because of that, you can walk in the garden very peacefully, you know, and you see a snake, it's not a big deal. You keep walking, um, but it doesn't impact your life to the degree that it used to. And so with, and it's a great trick. It's a great like mental, you know, exercise to help you live a healthier life. And so I use that when building a company, right? If one of my greatest fears is that it's not going to work, 
you know, what I've often done is like gotten really comfortable with that idea, right? I've thought about it. I've, what would I do? Okay, I'd have to tell these employees we're running out of money. I'd have to tell these employees that they're losing their jobs. I'd have to tell my family that the money that they gave us is, you know, is not, is not going to go anywhere, right? And man, that's so painful to think about. And it's so upsetting. And then I think about it and you think about it and you think about it. And then you go, okay, okay, well, you know what? I'm now used to that idea. And that's a real outcome. And it could be a real possibility, but it doesn't, it's not overwhelming any longer. It's not terrifying any longer. It's just a, it's a statistical chance that that takes place. And now I'm going to move on and start focusing on making sure that doesn't happen. As you as you tactically think through that exposure, do you mind getting into specifics of just going? Because uh, I imagine you even go further to to where you think, okay, this is how this is how the team members, employees would deal with it. This is how the the family, friends, the large institutional investors, investors. I could I could imagine presume, but do you mind just going through that entire exercise? That and maybe that's as far as you, you went mentally, but the entire exercise, if you did tactically go even further in that. Just that uh, that mental exercise of exposing yourself to worst case scenario. Yeah, the the tool set that I used, um, and you know, I've done this with building this company. I've also done this with you know other things in life that you know brought me anxiety, like like everybody. You know, when there's something that really bothers me, where where there's an, when there's an outcome that you know maybe your brain is dwelling on, or that brings you a huge amount of anxiety, or or an outcome that could potentially take moments away from your life every day that you could be focused on other things, but you're just sitting on it and it's just kind of circling you. What I've done is actually I've written it out. I've quite literally written out the specific set of events that would take place. And I've written it out with the framework of what is the worst case scenario? Let's write out the worst case scenario of that situation. And then let's be incredibly precise, uncomfortably precise, right? This is what would take place. This is how it would feel. This is who, you know, this is how this individual would react when they heard the news. You know, this is how they would tell their friends and family. This is how I would feel. What would I do after it took place? I would go home. And, you know, I would literally write out these situations in, in, you know, quite graphic detail in a way that's incredibly upsetting. And that's the point, right? The point of exposure therapy is to actually not just have this this kind of ambiguous fear, but to actually articulate it precisely in a way that you can then look at, you can then read, you can think about, you can reflect on, and you can expose yourself to a number of times. And then what inevitably happens is quite quickly, you know, that that you know ambiguous fear, that ambiguous anxiety around this issue kind of disappears, right? And it, and it it loses its strength and it loses its power and it, it, you know, kind of frees you to go focus on other areas. And so, you know, writing out these things that, that bug you and, and giving, giving yourself a little courage to do it with specificity, with, you know, detail and, and the most uncomfortable degree of extremes actually, I think is one of the most successful ways to, to experience this type of, um, you know, kind of co- cognitive improvement. It's so fascinating you 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 did that and and I haven't done the writing out part but uh, in the last twelve months or eighteen months of of tilt before we sold to Airbnb in a very painful acquisition I mentally got comfortable and I think it was I think it was maybe uh, 
Buckminster Fuller that said, uh, for him to get comfortable with any situation, all it takes is for him to get comfortable with the worst case scenario. And 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 it's, you know, that sounds super obvious, but also just blew my mind where it's like, oh God, it's so simple. Get comfortable with the worst case scenario. And then you're comfortable in any, any, you know, any range of the spectrum of scenarios that can take place. And and I remember outlining mentally, okay, we've got 72 employees. They're all so uber smart. They're going to be, uh, they're going to grab jobs and it's going to be extremely painful to to tell them the news that we're shutting down, but they're all going to be able to get jobs. As you really add that specificity, it goes from this like, I'm going to ruin their lives to, all right, practically thinking they're going to get jobs very quickly. There are you know cases where you shut down a manufacturing plant in Flint, Michigan, and people are, are not going to get jobs very quickly. But if you're running an 11-person startup, Chances are everyone's gonna, everyone is getting recruited, especially in in uh, the world we live in today. Recruited three times a week, and and that won't be the end of their careers. It won't be the end of of your relationship with them. And that really was the case for those that didn't come to Airbnb. Every single person had a new job within eight weeks out of the the thirty or so that didn't come to, to Airbnb. And that even with the exposure therapy, I never thought it would be that quick and. The investor side of things, and just for the founders listening, or the potential founders listening of uh, thinking through how awful it would be, as long as you raise the capital with with a very open front, even from your uncle, your your parents, with the open up front scenario planning of this is the riskiest asset class. Yes, it can be a hundred x, but it is far more likely that it's zero x, especially in a in a first venture than then everyone knows what they're getting into and and they want to support you. And uh, you know, for many parents, they're like, man, this could be a 25K check, 10K check, 5K check for family and friends that care about you. And they know that this is going to be a lifelong education, even if it goes south in you know, 12 months to where it's not career ending, reputation ending. But it's, I think it's really fascinating that you went to the extent of writing it all out and getting extremely comfortable with all of the different specific points. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's really powerful. That's really cool. Yeah. I think it becomes needed at maybe at a certain point once, you know, the stakes are high enough and you're, you're trying to you know, keep that mental stability and, and focus, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great and incredibly valuable tool for me. Are there any other tools that come to mind that likely don't ever come up on <laughs> in, in interviews, but you know that are just, whether it's in your daily routine or whether it's in kind of just your managing your psyche, are there any others that that come to mind in that same vein of of exposure therapy to such specificity? You know, I think the, the other things I would recommend for founders are, are maybe a little bit more obvious, but but I think I've seen the benefit of consistency of health is critical sleep a lot a lot you know like this idea of, yeah tell me more about that yeah this idea of burning the midnight candle is just it's you know it's been built into movies and storylines right but the practical reality again is that building a company takes 10 years right quite literally statistically it's like seven to ten years so you're not going to be burning you know that that night candle until two three in the morning for 10 years it's just impossible you won't be able to do it. Um, and so have patience, um, sleep because it's a marathon, um, eat healthy, surround yourself with friends that don't give a shit about the outcome of your company. 
Um, you know, that's been really critical for me. You know, I've got a, a, an amazing group of friends and, and family and a wife that they're excited about me building the company because I'm excited about it, but they could care less whether or not it works or doesn't. And, you know, the, what, what it could mean if it works or if it doesn't, right? I think inevitably founders and, you know, startup employees, you know, there's potential to have an ego and arrogance and, and, you know, have this whole thing that comes with starting a company, especially as the company gets successful. And I think, it, you know, the reality is, is that can often be very detrimental to people's happiness and, and humanity. So I think I encourage people to surround themselves with friends and family that are, are really only worried about your happiness, right? And, and not necessarily the company's success in any way. And I think those are some of the, the things that I've done to you know, kind of counterbalance some of the stresses and anxieties related to, to being a founder. What is, what's an example of, of an emotional low point that just a, a truly kind of rock bottom emotional low point in your career in the last 10 years, or obviously knowing what the founder journey is like, it might've been in the last 60 days. What's an example of one of those com- that comes to mind? And, and I have listeners voices in my head saying they always, they continually ask me to ask for real specifics from founders because it is so humanizing and so rare to hear that from from founders uh, as successful as you are. It just again, rarely comes up in in interviews, but can be really powerful for people to to gain context and recognize that it's even in your position, it's it's really normal. What's one that comes to mind? The one that jumps out, you know, with with hims and hers is actually, and there's been again hundreds of them, but the one that that is most memorable is actually the first day we launched. You know, we had, as I as I talked about, we had been working on hims and hers for you know almost two years before we launched the company. Uh, we had raised capital from incredible investors, Josh Kushner at Thrive, who's you know I think one of the best investors on the West Coast or East Coast, uh, Kirsten Green at Forerunner. Um, who's you know one of the best brand investors on on the other coast? Like just great people, high quality people, the people that you want to to deliver for, like truly deliver for. Um, and we'd spent two years iterating with the customer, learning the pain points of the health industry, um, tracking the regulation, building all of the tools necessary to be able to launch this thing, making sure we had it positioned correctly, making sure we had marketing lined up so that when we launched, it was just. You know, off to the races, we had hired an amazing PR team. We had done interviews in advance of the launch so that on launch day, they were all coming out on the same day. And then we launched and I woke up in the morning and I started reading articles and I was so excited, the highest of highs. And I walked into the office and two of my co-founders looked at me and they had a look of just like death on their face. and. And I was like, what? What's going on? And they had been up since like I think maybe four in the morning or five in the morning, because apparently one of the partners that we had contracted with, who was going to be one of our first fulfillment partners to make sure that the medicine, when a doctor prescribed medicine on our platform, got to the patient within a couple of days. It's a huge critical partner, a fulfillment like pharmaceutical pharmacy partner for us. They had called us. I guess the night before and said that they were pulling the contract because they didn't think they could, they could deliver on time. And we had had kind of, we, 
we've been like sniffing around and be like, you know, this, this partner seems really high quality, but there's like little hints of the things maybe we need to be concerned about. But it had been months and months and months and we'd gotten comfortable. And then that morning of, we found out they weren't fulfilling. And so I was supposed to be on, and I ended up doing you know, a dozen interviews that day. We had an incredible launch. We had thousands of people who signed up the first week for, for, the, for the platform to get access to um, dermatology-related products, sexual health products. Um, I mean, it really was like we nailed the launch. But the whole time I knew we didn't have somebody that could fulfill the medication. And I found out about it the morning of. And this is literally, you know, almost a year of, of partnering with this organization. And, and, and they, they, they pulled out from underneath us. And so for the course of the first couple of days, everything was broken, entirely broken. And we, thankfully, you know, my team is excellent. We had plan Bs and plan Cs, and we were off to the races to get those things set up. But, you know, I'll just, I'll never forget being on interviews, talking about how this platform is going to change healthcare, because you can now come to hims and hers, no matter where you are in the country and get access to health related products from the comfort of your phone. There's nothing that's ever been done before like this that gives you that much power and control. And I really believed in that. But I also simultaneously knew that in this moment, one of our core partners couldn't deliver. And then what I was saying was not true, right? And it was just crazy, crazy kind of hour, right? That took place. Um, right. And obviously within a couple of days, we solved it. We found more partners. We got them onboarded. But it was it was brutal, right? In that moment, you have the ability to spiral into like, oh my God, this isn't going to work, you know? And you just have to kind of expect things like that to happen. And you need to adapt really quickly. And you need to stay calm because I guarantee, you know, it's not going to be the, the, the last time that this occurs. And you need to have really amazing people around you and teams around you that are high attention to detail and are executing really well. And, you know, my, my early team, you know, are still leaders and, 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 and executives at the company today. They're excellent. So, you know, thankfully they, they moved fast and were able to, to tackle it, but it was just an incredible moment. It was like, you know, I feel like a Silicon Valley TV show episode taking place, of, you know, on that external perspective. Right. Like you've got customers signing up left and right. And on the inside, the whole thing is falling apart. For that Order from your phone. It's super slick and smooth. And in the back of your head, you're like, and you will not get your medicine. Yep. Yep. That's really cool to to hear. And, and yeah, I can't imagine how. Learn from that. <laughs> for all the founders listening. You need to learn from that. So since that point, we have verticalized every single part of our supply chain, right? Yeah. There, there, and thought about every possible way that that could break again and make sure that it doesn't. But inevitably, you know, you need to experience something like that to learn, and you just have to kind of stay calm through that process. Right, right. You can, uh, and yeah, there's the the tactical learnings, and then I think there's also just the. Uh, philosophical or psychological learning of of just um your story listening to that and knowing okay within a few days it, it's going to be solved and and i imagine in that moment it was a complete crisis of imagination of how the hell it was going to be solved but it's that you now that story is living proof that even something as dire as that can be solved in the next few days and i i know that i i have the tendency if i don't 
corral it to make things so much worse because you feel like it's a free fall instead of gliding to a solution, which just happens a hundred times over and over again. And you actually glide to the next solution and you glide to the next solution. If I don't corral my my inner voice that says you're this is in free fall and you know it's going to be it's going to be blood and guts on the pavement if if we don't you know do X Y Z all at the same time, it can make things so much worse. And it sounds like you had the patience and the belief in the team to just let the solution come versus uh, just needing to flip over you know tables to try to find out how uh, how you're going to solve it ASAP. Do you think that that's natural wiring for you, or do you think that that was uh, a learned uh, a learned you know neural pathway to solve uh, moments of crisis? Um, I think it's I think it's learned. You know, I think you you have to experience it and reflect on it, and then experience again and mess it up again. You know, I, I think I have a really strong belief that you know, the majority of people have the capacity to learn all of these things and you're not really born with too, too much of this expertise. And so I think it just takes reflection and, and the ability and the privilege to have, you know, the experiences um, in front of you, right? Like you need to be put in those scenarios to, to build that pattern recognition. Um, and that's obviously a huge, you know, huge, a huge advantage that you can gain, but, but I think it's definitely learned. Well, last two questions for you, Andrew. And the second to last one is, tell me three stories in your life, personal, professional, but three stories that have helped shape who you've become at, at a young age, but also one with, with a lot of experience um, in building things. Yeah, you know, the, there's probably three, you know, critical moments that, that in the last 15 years, I'd say that have taught me a tremendous amount. You know, the first, and we we touched on this a little bit. The first is when I, you know, decided to to leave university and and come build, you know, my first company, and that was just a that was a process of, you know, essentially going against probably for the first time in my life, going against the norm, and having a contrarian opinion and sticking to it, just because I really believed it was right. Right. And I think as a kid and as a teenager, you kind of don't buck the trend very often, right? You, you, you do what you're told, you go to school, show up. And I think when I was 18 years old, it was the first time where I said, you know what? I really feel like I can be more productive. I feel like I can learn faster. I feel like I can create more value. I feel like I can help more people if I wasn't sitting and just learning in this form factor, but was actually in it and touching it with my hands and experiencing it. And a lot of people disagreed, right? It, that is not protocol. Once you get into, you know, a school like Penn and, and the Ward program, you finish it. And then you go to Goldman and you make a lot of money and you're an investment banker, you know, in New York. And, and then at some point you retire or something, but I don't know. I just, you know, that, that wasn't for me clearly the path. And so I think that was really the first time I did something different. And I took a bet and I took a bet on myself. Right. And I think that's a hard thing to do, you know, when you're young, but that was the first time I think I built a little bit of confidence in, you know, trusting my instinct, investing in myself um, and saying, I think, you know, I think everything will be okay. And I think the worst case scenario is something I'm comfortable with. That was probably one of the more critical early aspects of, of my life. 
that gave me, I think, frankly, a lot of confidence to, to come and do so much of the others, right? So the other stories, I think, are really around the creation of Atomic Labs, which is, you know, an incredible studio in San Francisco, and then the founding of Hims, And, you know, both of those things were, you know, really big jumps for me personally. You know, with Atomic, I have incredible co-founders, Jack Abraham, um, Chester Ng, you know, great partners that are repeat entrepreneurs and operators. But again, what we were doing with Atomic was saying, we think the existing venture capital model is broken. We think you've got VCs on one side of the table and operators on the other side of the table. And there's a lack of transparency of information between them. And the, you know, the entrepreneurs are trying to pitch the best story and the VCs are trying to tear it apart. And you know, that dynamic just doesn't seem right. There's got to be a better way to build companies. And with Atomic, we took a bet that said the better way is to bring investors and operators together under the same fund and for investors to use the recognition of the patterns that they've seen from investing over and over again and partner with the operators that have the best operational patent recognition and say, you know, what should we work on hand in hand? You know, I think leaving school gave me a degree of confidence to better myself, you know, the founding of Atomic. And I think, you know, the ability to bring people together, to me, gave me the confidence that, you know, the reason that institutions are as they are today is simply because that's how they are, but not because they're the perfect institution and that they are adaptable and that they're, you know, they can be changed and that they can be improved. And, you know, what we know, I mean, and, and Steve Jobs used to say this all the time, right? Like what we know to be true is established by people who are no smarter than us, right? So everything in the world is is changeable if we think there's a better version of it. And I think, you know, building Atomic was our first first moment of, of saying, hey, there's something in the world that we think we can make better um, and a structure to make better. And I think it's been wildly successful. We've, you know, raised hundreds of millions of dollars for that fund and the returns are, you know, better than than most high class venture capital firms. And, you know, we brought to brought to market over a dozen businesses that are really impactful to the, the world and have done it with far less capital and in far shorter amounts of time, right? It's all the things you care about, high impact, low cost, low um, low amounts of time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think that that was also really critical to me. You know, our first bet at improving, you know, the country and and saying this institution that's been around for you know fifty years, we think we can make better. And then you know, I think in the last few years, you know, this story of hims and hers has just been, you know, such a learning experience for me. And in particular, because the business has scaled so quickly, right? The company is 24, 30 months old, you know, and and, and it's gone from seed stage startup to, you know, you know, public ready type business, right? Like a company that would do exceptionally well in the public markets um, over the course of two years. Um, and so for me, that that's meant that I have needed to change as a leader, you know, a dozen times. And and I kind of joke to my wife that every 90 days I need to, you know, kind of rewrite my job description because it changes every 90 days. I need to hire when I see weaknesses in myself, right, to fill those gaps. And then I need to reevaluate the areas that I can deliver unique value to the business by spending time. And then I need to go spend time there. And, and that changes literally every 90 days. And so 
there's this like humility in building hymns and hers, given the the speed at which it's scaled. There's been this incredible accelerated learning around the need to adapt, especially as a leader in in each stage of a company's life cycle. You know, and then there's also just been an incredible, you know, rewarding experience of being able to bring together, you know, a hundred, two hundred people all focused on what I think is, you know, the biggest industry in the country, which is healthcare. It's a four trillion dollar market and hundreds of millions of people are experiencing terrible care and are sick and not well and are losing money and are going bankrupt. I mean, it, it just needs focus. So there's just this amazing, you know, rewarding opportunity to spend time on an industry that is so ripe for innovation that for so long has not focused on the customer. And that from a platform standpoint can be something that, you know, can be a long enduring public company for decades and decades and decades. So I think, you know, those are probably the three that that stand out. And I think they're all kind of connected in a lot of ways, but have been pretty transformative to to who I am today and, and how I got here. Well, yeah, and a, and a side note on just how massive the healthcare industry is coupled with how everyone feels underserved by it. It's, dude, what the hell is going on with our, our healthcare system? Um, I would love to get, uh, get add this question right in between um, before my last one, but just your take on what our healthcare industry will look like in 20 years now that there's well, now that everyone's eyes are on it because of COVID, but also post-opioid crisis, the last six years, it's been an eye-opening moment for us to, to wake up and realize, all right, the people in white coats don't necessarily know exactly what is in our best interest. And and there is, you know, we don't have, as Andrew Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil uh, put it on, a, on one of my episodes a few months ago, just said, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease management system. Right. right. And, and we've yet to build a healthcare system, but hopefully we, hopefully we actually do that sometime soon. Just on that topic, what, is, what do you think healthcare looks like in, in 20 years for Americans? You know, it's, I know it's, it's, a, it's a huge, broad stroke question, but you know, it's... Yeah, uh, yeah. It's actually not that hard of a question, to be honest. It's um, yeah, please. I think it's it's a pretty simple question, which is, it's going to look and feel a lot more like every other industry that people love, right? It's going to look and feel like a consumer brand that people trust, and it's going to look and feel like a platform that people love using and is seamless and is built on technology tools that we use in our everyday lives. It's going to be accessible from your phone. It's going to be affordable. It's going to be transparent. You're going to have choice as a consumer of who you talk to about what issue, and you're going to be able to understand seamlessly what the products are that can make you feel better and the pros and cons of each. Um, And you're going to have a specialist help you guide through that process. You're not going to have to deal with bullshit, right? Of perverse incentives and waiting weeks for an appointment and not being able to afford the call and not, you know, clear about what it's going to end up costing. It's going to be a completely new system. Um, and, and I really believe that. And I think it's going to be something that's entirely oriented around the customer where you can pick up your phone and you can access a suite of every service in healthcare. And you can talk to a specialist within minutes from the comfort of your phone, from the comfort of your couch 
And then you can get the medicine you need and the treatments you need or the tests you need sent to your door within a day or two. And then there's going to be technology that's checking in on you and making sure that you're taking the medicine and that your symptoms are improving and that um, dosage adjustments don't, you know, aren't necessary. And on top of that, there are going to be services where you're going to have opportunities to, to talk about things like exposure therapy and mindfulness and yoga and supplements that could be beneficial in addition to Western medicine. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be completely different. Um, and I think what, you know, my bet is, and this is obviously what the bet of hims and hers is, is that there are going to be front doors to the healthcare system. There are going to be brands that help you triage and figure out where you need to go for whatever you're worried about. Um, and I think with hims and hers, our bet is you're going to come to a brand like, like ours that is authentic and direct and blunt, but beautiful and comprehensive where we can connect you with an expert, you know, within minutes, and then we can get products delivered to your door within a couple of days. And there's going to be liaisons in healthcare and health systems that look and feel like consumer brands you love that you're loyal to that just make the whole thing really easy. So it's, you know, I think it's a system that's going to be built outside of the existing system today, where there's complexity of insurance and pharmacies and PBMs and pairs and corporations, all of whom make a lot of money behind the scenes and are incentivized in all types of perverse ways, none of which are intended for better customer care and better consumer outcomes and better healthcare. Um, And so when I see that, I have a very strong amount of conviction that there will be a new system. It's going to be a consumer first system. It's going to be simple and seamless. Um, and it's going to be empowering to anybody in the country that, that, that wants to use it. Well, it is, uh, God bless you all for, for building towards that future because it's one that is, is just, I mean, and hopefully it, just like we've seen in the last 12 months, it feels like it is uh, 12 months ago is in the dark ages um, with with just the uh, the deregulation around telehealth, and um, I'm an investor in in a company called Cerebral, which is a fantastic telemental health company. That just the roadmap went from we'll be in ten states in 24 months to we're in 15 states in six weeks. It's um, really really uh, amazing, and, and you guys are better positioned than anyone anyone to continue pushing that forward. And I do believe the consumer ultimately wins, always wins, and as the consumer you know, if 2020 gets used to the type of care and support that they get from a company like Hims and Hers, it's, um, they're going to push for the regulation to allow it, you know, in any state that they're, that they're living in with every condition that they might be, uh, uh, you know, inflicted with. And I love that answer. All right. Last question for you, Andrew, is what's something you think a lot about that you rarely ever get a chance to talk about? Something that just takes up a lot of mind share in your head, either, you know, in the last two weeks or last two years, or the last 30 years of your life, but something takes up a good amount of mind share, but just, you know, not necessarily if it's taboo or not, but just doesn't come up in conversation. What is something that comes to mind that's something you think a lot about, but rarely get a chance to discuss? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think my, my, my wife is probably the only one that knows this, but I, I spend a tremendous amount of time reading about technologies to improve the climate. So for anybody that was, you know, in California for the last couple of weeks or or even actually they could have been in any part of the country, 
you know, the amount of wind and heat and smoke from those fires, you know, turned the city of San Francisco black, right? We woke up one morning and it was eight in the morning and the sky was actually black, right? And then by noon, it was black with a little bit of red, right? It was probably the scariest thing that, that frankly, I, I, I've ever witnessed. And it's going to keep getting worse, right? It's like just, it's, it's simply math. Um, and so, you know, I think the ability to invest in technologies and innovation to either accelerate, you know, the countries and the world's transition to cleaner energy, but also, you know, R&D and technologies that are net carbon kind of emission technologies to capture CO2 and store it, things like, um, you know, DAC technology or afforestation or kelp. I mean, there's just so many things people are working on. I I find myself nerding out and reading studies, you know, every week on that stuff just to start getting smart because, you know, my my belief is that outside of fixing healthcare, that's probably the next problem that, you know, I and others need to start putting our brains towards. Amen. Yeah. And for, for listeners or for you, Andrew, there's a, I did a, an episode with Gustav Alstromer from Y Combinator and Diego Saez-Gill from a company called Pachama, a deep dive on climate tech about six months ago. And, and I was just reading this morning that the amount of venture capital invested in climate tech companies has 5X in six months. So it is likely all due to that podcast episode. Andrew, uh, just kidding, but it's a, it is a really enlightening or a really illuminating episode of, of discussing all of the different ways that technology is, is, has already been, been making great headways, but also the opportunities that still, that still lie before us. Cause it is the, I think it's the very beginning of us taking that stuff seriously. So yeah, thank you for sharing. And I'll be looking your direction for, for you to share more about that. If it is this obsession of yours. All right, Andrew, where can people find out more about you online? Well, you can come uh, get access to to all of our services and offerings at forhims or forhers.com. Um, and then outside of that, I try to stay pretty, you know, off the grid and just focus on the business. But you can always shoot me an email at andrew at forhims.com. And, you know, I've got a, um, a LinkedIn, so you can always send me a message there as well. Awesome. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you for the, uh, for the generosity and time today. And can't wait to see what is in store for, for hims and hers. I think it's, um, it's incredible what you'll have accomplished in the last two and a half years. And, uh, and I think it's only, it's only just beginning for y'all. Thank you. Awesome. It was great to be on. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for coming. Hey friends and listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.